Brother Cash called me uh, this past week and asked me a question that tied into something the Lord had already spoken to me. It's fun when somebody asks you a question and God's already given you the jump start. Um, but he asked me a question, as he is wont to do, that, that got me even ruminating on it a little bit more. And the question was, how do we keep the victory? Was that it? How do we keep the victory? And uh, I want to talk about that a little bit because we do not experience a dearth of gracious moments in our setting. And we've had another one of those gracious moments here this morning. But we need to know how to keep the victory. He says, hold on to what you have so that no one can steal your crown. And if we don't learn how to keep it, we're going to lose our inheritance, we're going to lose our crown, and we're going to have fought in vain. There's too much behind us, too many battles already in the rearview mirror to lose it all now. And so I want to say that we've talked already today about deliverance and about healing, about miracles, but there's more than one kind of deliverance, healing, and miracle. The Bible says that we are supposed to carry our cross daily, right? It says we're supposed to die daily. It says we're supposed to make a daily sacrifice. It says we're supposed to continue in the faith and persist in doing what is good. And I think that if we don't parse these things rightly, we're going to superimpose a miraculous moment on our problem when God is calling for a miraculous lifestyle. And if we're looking for a miraculous moment, but it actually needs a miraculous lifestyle, we're going to get very discouraged because we're going to keep chasing and getting those moments that don't turn into sustained victory. So, I feel like the Lord is showing me before and after we talked that we sustain our victories by keeping our fleshly will in the grave, keeping our minds and hearts immersed in the Spirit, and keeping our lives immersed in a body that constantly applies God's truth to us. And we can't do any of this if we don't get ourselves out of the momentary framework and into the lifestyle framework. So I want to read a scripture that I think gets to the heart of this. It's in John 8, 31. We all know it, but let's listen to it regardless because we've read everything in here, but it still speaks to us. Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in him. So right off the bat, John wants us to know that whatever is about to come, it's coming to believers. It's not coming to unbelievers. Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you continue, so we are not truly his disciple. We can't even 
assume the label except in a posture of persistence. Amen? And then he says, and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. I think the tense here would be better rendered and you will be knowing the truth and the truth will be making you free. They answered him, Praise God, we've been enslaved to the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans, and our own self. So I'm glad we found freedom. Not even the old dying translation says that. What did they answer him? Eureka! <laughs> Praise God. What did they say? They said, we are. They asserted a status in answer to a progress, a journey. They said, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. Some bad memory going on right there. <laughs> How is it that you say you will become free? They find it preposterous that he would even suggest that they need more freedom in their life. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. And if we're looking for how do we keep our victory, it's how do we become sons? How do we adopt a sonship mindset? Because that's a mindset that keeps going. That's a mindset that continues, that persists. It's not a visitation, it's a habitation. Now, there are a lot of ways that people parse this passage. And I am just going to go out on a limb and say I don't agree with any of them that I've ever heard. I believe it says exactly what it sounds like. I think that the dilemma that this passage raises in our hearts is solved in a more nuanced way than might first meet the eye. It sounds like he's saying you're a slave to sin if you commit sin. And I think he's saying you're a slave to sin if you commit sin. I mean, that is what it says. And the tense is not very helpful if you dig into it there. It doesn't get us out of the pickle. So we do have a pickle here, don't we? Because Jesus said, you're a slave to sin if you commit sin. John said, you're a liar if you deny. He told believers, you're a, a liar if you deny that you have sin. And Paul said, if you're a slave, then you're going to hell. You're, it ends in death. So we can't deny that we've got it. We're a slave if we've got it, and we're going to hell if we're a slave. Okay, y'all, God bless y'all. <laughs> I think Jesus is introducing truth as a constant prerequisite antidote in our lives that alone allows us to claim victory over our enslaved native condition to sin. 
Do you follow? And the best analogy I could think of was diabetes. We have, I have people in my family who've suffered it, many in, in this room who suffer it. If you have a, a severe case of diabetes, nobody would deny, I don't think Brother Mark would deny, that that is a lethal condition. But if I went up to him and I said, Brother Mark, is diabetes lethal? He'd probably say, yes. And I'd say, well, I have diabetes, therefore you're saying I'm going to die. And he'd say, no. And I'd say, so it's not lethal. And he'd say, yes, it is. And what would be missing from this equation? That there is an antidote. That there is an element that can bring dominion over that condition. And what is that element? It's insulin or some other form. In less severe cases, it's a lifestyle change. You could even bear that one out a little bit. But let's just take the insulin. In Jesus' equation, he's saying, you are a slave. Slavery's going to end in death. But if truth is the insulin in your life, you can gain victory over that. You've got to have the ongoing confrontation of truth in your life. You've got to continue in my word, then you can truly claim that you are my disciples and you're going to be made free. So if you've got insulin, you can live in freedom over the results, the threat of diabetes. But it doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not a constant creeping threat wanting to take you captive again. It doesn't mean you can say, once taken, always taken. <laughs> Try that. I mean, we even see that with, with our human condition. Try once eat, once I ate, always eaten, you know. <laughs> there, there are certain things in life that no amount of provision is going to eliminate. The provision comes in small, appropriate deposits that you take as needed and you can claim victory over it. We want a victory that ends our dependence. But our dependence is not a flaw in God's system. It's his design. I've even shared before that I think some people seek repentance to end their dependence. But that is a false pursuit altogether. God has no vision in his mind of a lifestyle that you can live that doesn't make you dependent upon him, his word, his spirit, and his body. There's no salvation outside of Christ. You've got to be in Him. And if we're answering the question of how, does our, how do we keep our victory, Jesus said that He came that we would bear fruit that remains. That's to say, keep a victory. But He told us that it's by abiding in Him. It's not by giving us a formula. So have we solved the dilemma of, of, of John 8? Does everybody follow what I'm saying there? That, that 
you're not going to make it by getting this one-time experience and then going on with, with your life. You're going to make it by incorporating this regular, persistent deposit and confrontation of truth against the disease that is chronic through and through. Thank you, Jesus. So what is the biggest instinctual or theological or religious um, aversion to this confrontation of truth? You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. But we don't know that truth in a powerful Wednesday night meeting one time in our life. This is only going to be known if we continue, if we keep with it. Amen. So what is our aversion to this truth? Well, it's not flattering, is it? The truth is spoken of as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And a sword denotes that something needs to be cut off, doesn't it? The truth is spoken of as a cleansing sponge or scrub, GI brush. You are already clean because the Word I spoke to you, right? Washing of water by the word, right? So the truth is not automatically something that we reach for and say, oh yeah, I need a little more of that. Just like insulin comes with a prick, or I suppose it used to, I don't know if it still does, but just like it comes with a prick, we have to overcome the prick, the, the something inside of us that doesn't like how this grace comes. But, but, but there's even more than that. It, there's, there's more than just the discomfort. There's something inside of all of us. I would say it's universal throughout Christianity that when God sends grace in the form of confrontational truth, there's a certain rationale that kicks in. What does it go like? It, it's something like, you're trying to tell me I'm not saved? You're trying to tell me God didn't change my life on that Wednesday night when he gave me a new heart? You're trying to tell me I'm still the old man? I mean, if I believed that, I would deny the incredible miracle God did in my life. I can't tell you how many people have told me I'm a different person. Hmm. Ding-a-ling, I, I hear the bells ringing. Amen. How do we answer that? I mean, there's like a religious defensiveness against God in all of that. And I suppose that there is a way to consider correction or even to give correction that, that truly could be damaging. But is that what God's doing when, when He tells you that something is wrong? When He brings that that insulin into your life? Is that what he's doing? You were never changed. You were never redeemed. You're just as lost as the day you were born or the day you walked into church. Is that, is that what's happening? So, so what's wrong with this perspective? What's wrong with it? It assumes that God accepts us based on our flawlessness our static condition instead of our relationship. God does not ever adopt us and accept us because we are qualified behaviorally. 
He adopts us and accepts us because he's merciful and because we are qualified relationally. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story that struck me for the first time last night. Whenever my kiddos come to tell me goodnight, I usually don't disappoint that experience by applying as much tickling and teasing and dad harassing as possible. But I will often ask them stupid questions because that's part of what it means to be a father, just to ask (laughs) stunningly stupid questions. So one of those questions is I ask them, I ask all of them, but I ask, I'll focus on the little ones, how come I love you so much? And they always say the same thing, especially two of them. And yesterday, Aaron says to me, because you're my dad and I'm your buddy. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I'm kind of trying to provoke them to say that I love them so much because they're terribly cute, smart as a whip, a dapper young fella, or some other, you know, expression like that. Like I said, it's the mission of a dad. And they never go there. They never kind of are led to that admission that, that I love them because of how they are. They, they say, I, I love them. How come I love you so much? And they say, it's because you're my dad and I'm your buddy. And I, it hit me. I said, oh, wow. Well, that is fundamentally true. God doesn't love us so much because of our qualifications, our intelligence, our behavior. Those are not sufficient grounds to find or experience his love. He loves us so much because he's our dad and we're his son. There is a relationship that stands outside of our condition. Do you understand? But we're conditioned as humans to evaluate ourselves and to evaluate others and to imagine that we are loved because of our performance or our behavior and so on and so forth. And if that were the case, God couldn't have loved us while we were yet sinners. Now, I know and you know that people can take this truth that I'm sharing and and stretch it into something that I'm not saying and that the Bible's not saying. But for our purposes, let's let's not answer the devil according to his folly. Let's just try to understand what God is saying here. Amen. We are not in right relationship because of our performance. We are in right relationship because of our trust, because of our faith. And that trust and faith is not real if it does not correlate and produce actions that prove it. Okay? But we can't extrapolate that into some model where we are performance-oriented in our relationship with God. That's a lie. And if we're performance-oriented, then that makes sense why when he points out our failings, we get freaked out. We only get freaked out if God shows us our failings if we have relationship with him based on our faultlessness. Show me my faults and I freak out because that's why I'm your son. But that's not why 
his, were his son. God does not accept us based on our faultlessness. What are the grounds for which he accepts us? It's the relationship. And the relationship is always changing, always improving, always redeeming, always empowering, always adding grace to our lives. But we can't get the equation backwards and inside out. In Luke 18, it says, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Now, in this parable, we're going to see the man who thinks he's accepted based on his performance and the man who gets accepted based on something completely different. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself. That's a statement all by itself, isn't it? <laughs> and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not. I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If the Pharisee were told that afternoon that he was actually a robber, if any, if any dynamic or spirit of theft had been revealed in his character on whatever level, how would he respond to that correction? He would have defended himself like a mad devil or a wet cat. Pharisee, wet cat. You can kind of see the corollary. <laughs> Why? Because he was hanging everything on that. Do you understand? But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus then picks up and says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. It's one of only two times in the whole Bible where the Lord Jesus uses the word justified. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all those who humble themselves will be exalted. The exaltation of the Pharisee was to point out how much better than others he was, and to imagine that is what secured his status with God. And he was humbled in that he lost the relationship with God. There was no presence, there was no answer from the one to whom he was praying. But the abasement of the tax collector was to acknowledge that his goodness represented no grounds for the relationship but to still seek it with all of his heart. Amen. And to go home exalted to the place of a healed relationship. Jeremiah says, I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You discipline me severely like an untrained calf. Restore me that I may return, for you are the Lord my God. After I returned, I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh in grief. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not it, and then the Lord says, is not Ephraim a precious son to me? Amen. In this moment where Ephraim the people, Ephraim the nation, is 
disciplined by God, beat up like an untrained calf, and he's instructed, and he's ashamed, and he's humiliated, and he's striking his thigh, and he's saying, oh God, I can't believe it. In that moment, the Lord says, is Ephraim not a dear son to me? You know the scriptures, Deuteronomy. Know in your heart that just as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. Psalms, blessed is the man you discipline, O Yahweh, and teach your law. Psalms again, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Proverbs, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord, and do not loathe his rebuke. Proverbs again, the Lord disciplines the one he loves as, as does a father, the son in whom he delights. God does not delight in you because you are free from the need to be corrected. He delights in you because you receive the ongoing correction that affirms the relationship. Do you get it? Revelations, those I love, I rebuke and discipline, therefore be earnest and repent. <laughs> it's an expression of love. You've got to continue in the course. You've got to stick with it. There's no moment where you say, aha, I've arrived at the status. What is the purpose? What is the essential purpose of discipleship in the church? I would say that in a broad sense, I, I would say it's sanctification, right? And that is a big category. And, and why is sanctification important? Because the Bible tells us over and over and over that you cannot see the Lord without sanctification. You're blind without this ongoing process of being made more like Jesus. You can't see Him. Who, who, who sees the Lord? The pure in heart shall see God. Who will ascend to His holy hill? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Without sanctification, he says, no one will see the Lord. Isn't that right? Since you have been set free from sin, you have become willing slaves to God and you have your benefit resulting in sanctification. And the outcome of this, this sanctification, is eternal life. So as soon as you get in right relationship, that relationship starts changing you so that you can be ready to meet the Lord and you can be able to see the Lord in your daily life so that you don't live under the scales that once were covering Saul of Tarsus' eyes before he turned to the Lord and got a clearer vision. Amen? So discipleship is for sanctification that we may see the Lord. Discipleship is for cleansing from sin and increasing fruit. Jesus says in uh, John 15, he says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what happens to it? It's cut off. And every branch that bears fruit is left alone so that it might become complacent in its static, status condition. Static condition. You can't even get the message to say that. Every branch that bears fruit, he does what? He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. <laughs> That's quite a statement. It suggests that we're never good enough 
That there's no point where we're going to get to this place and go, I've arrived. That God is never satisfied because we're always trying to learn what pleases the Lord. We're striving to be conformed not to this world, but to be transformed and conformed to the image of His Son. So He's always wanting more fruit. So every branch that's, that's working, who, who, which is the branch that gets pruned? The one that has no fruit? No, the one that has fruit. If the knife is coming towards your life, it's a compliment. If it's the pruning knife and not the saw. If the saw is coming towards your life, you say, God, I don't have any fruit in my life. But if he's coming to prune, he's saying, I'm going to get this excess off so that something can spring back with more power. The life that is already in there, that I know is there, that I see is there, that I celebrate being there, we just need more fruit. Amen. And then he says this statement, he says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. And then this verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You think he just changed his topic from pruning to cleaning? Do you know that the word clean there is the word prune? Because in the Greek, they're the same word. To clean a tree is to prune a tree. And to clean a person's life is to prune a person's life. It's the same thing. He says, you're already pruned. They're thinking they were fixing to get pruned again. But why are they already pruned? Because of the word I have spoken to you. Is that once pruned, always pruned? How often was that word coming to them? One great sermon where Peter says, Thou art the Christ, and then... A little bit later, he's like, Jesus, remember, I'm already clean because you spoke a word to me once. <laughs> no, no, this, this condition is endemic. This tendency to return to the slavery of our perspective, to the slavery of our sin and our pride, it's there, it's chronic, it's in us. That's why we've got to die daily and that's why there's a sword of the truth, which is the Word of God, that puts something to death daily. And the only reason we're clean is because a Word has already come. And the only thing that can clean us is to let that Word come again and again and again and again and again. And if that Word is that regular thing in our life, if we're not trying to get away from it, trying to graduate from it, if we're embracing it, then we can claim the status. We can say... I have the condition, but it doesn't have dominion over me. Amen. Because I am already clean because of the word he spoke. And this is also where he says that he wants their fruit to remain. The word is to cleanse. The, the confronting, discipling word is to cleanse. That's obviously what he says in John 17 when he says, Sanctify them in your truth, right? Clean them off in your truth. Sanctify here is separate them. Separate them from the sin. Separate them apart. Sanctify them in your truth. It's what Paul's speaking of in Ephesians 5 when he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He's cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. The church does not enjoy a static condition of once cleaned, always cleaned. It's we're clean because of the word. 
And if we found a way to get around the word, we found a way to get around the pruning and the cleaning and we're filthy again. We've got to em embrace the word. We're told in Hebrews that the, the word is living and powerful and that it knows how to make precise distinctions because that's what sanctification does. It separates the holy from the profane and it separates, it makes a distinction between soul and spirit. Oh, that's of the Spirit. That's of God. But that's just soulish. That's not, that's not of God. Of joint and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. So this cleaning, this cleansing knife of the sword of the Word of God, it is intended to parse our thoughts and intents. If you shield that sword from the thoughts and intents, it never divides them. It never parses them. And you can survive, but you survive in your filthiness. Only if you can stand there and say, Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my heart. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Only then can you say I'm already clean because God hit me right where it hurt. God separated something in my deepest place in the thoughts and intents of my heart. This is a promise, not a threat. The discipling word, the cleansing word, I said that the, the discipling word is to, uh, <clears throat> is to sanctify us. It's to cleanse us. It's to increase our fruit. The discipling word of truth, the confrontational word of truth, is to cure our instability. It's to cure our wobbliness in doing God's will. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there. Why are we no longer going to be like this? Because we're not accepting the craftiness of deceitful men, but we are speaking the truth in love and thereby growing up. You know, a child, in, in the analogy that Paul is using here, is, is a very small child who's just learning to walk. Your average child is not tossed here and there he's talking about someone who's learning to walk he's talking about the instability of a baby and he's saying the truth is what's going to gird strength to your legs and help you to stand upright and do God's will to walk in the path of his command what's something else that the Bible tells us that confrontational correctional truth does for us This is a big, everybody knows this one. What's a big one that confrontational discipline truth does for us? We're told that the, that the discipline of the Lord secures our adoption, Right? So this is the last big point. It secures our adoption. And Hebrews tells us that if we don't undergo discipline or discipleship, what is our condition? What's the problem with being illegitimate? I mean, that's just a, a mean thing to say. You bastard or you illegitimate. You think the writer of Hebrews is just being mean? 
taken a chance to, to say something ugly to us? I mean, you know, those of us who hate discipline. Hmm? Is he, is, he, is he just being mean? What's the problem with being illegitimate? You have no inheritance. And you can't be part of the congregation. You have no inheritance, though. To, it, to this day, somebody dies and somebody comes along and says, that's my dad. I don't believe that. Prove it. You got to prove that you are legitimately the product. You are you have his DNA inside of you. Before you can claim that this inheritance belongs to you. So so when he says that he's saying there's some kind of inheritance that you're going to miss out on if you figure out how to outwit discipline how to outfox the discipline in your life. The illegitimate status is the disinherited status. It's the inheritance in the saints that Paul spoke about. <laughs> it's the inheritance of his glory that he also spoke about. It's the inheritance of eternal life that our pledge of the Holy Spirit guarantees. Amen. Who wants to live a disinherited life? Who wants to sense that God's bounty, God's abundant grace, blessings, answers, inheritance doesn't come to you because you figured out how to make your real birth illegitimate by rejecting discipline? He says, you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take lightly the discipline of the Lord and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. It's like the alternative is you could be illegitimate. For what son is there that his father does not discipline? If you do not experience discipline like everyone else, then you are illegitimate children and not sons at all. He goes in this same verse just a little bit later, the same chapter, he says, Make straight paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed and pursue peace with all men and sanctification. This is the same passage as if the discipline is going to affect this. This is verse 12 of the same chapter in, Rome, in Hebrews 12. And pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and defiles many. You think he's talking about falling short of the grace of God and getting disinherited and, and sanctification? He's just making scrambled eggs of all these thoughts. No, it's receiving discipline that sanctifies us. It's rejecting discipline that makes us bitter and makes us come short of the grace of God and defile everybody, which is the opposite of sanctification. Defensiveness is the mechanism for deflecting the pokes to our perfection, which we imagine qualify us for acceptance. We all do it. It's, 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 it's instinctual. Somebody comes up to you and, and pokes you, you're going to be like, <laughs> you know, 
You've got to bring that under dominion if you're not going to do that. If you don't want to do that. It's automatic. But it's rooted in the idea that we are accepted because of our perfection, our qualifications. And that idea is a lie. The basis for acceptance is not whether we receive correction, but how we receive correction. You see what I'm saying? That's the basis. We're not going to grow in our gifts. We're not going to grow in our service. We're not going to grow in our character until we stop acting like this is a problem and adopt it as a lifestyle. I think that a lot of people come to the church and they, they, they experience the power of God in a meeting like this and, and they, they really come with a little bit of a false expectation. They see the holiness of some people around them and, and they're very inspired and they put two and two together and they say powerful meeting equals changed lives equals holy mature saints. I'm, gonna go, I'm coming. I'll be at the meeting. But powerful meeting equals broken pride and a made-up mind. And a broken pride and a made-up mind equals reception to correction. And reception to correction changes and sanctifies the life. You can't skip that. There is nobody here whose character you admire who has not been corrected six ways to Sunday. <laughs> there is not any exception to it. If there is an exception, you have found a bastard. You have found an illegitimate who took the rebirth experience and undid it when they refused to continue in his word and to know the truth that would clean them every day. We hate it, and there's no way around it. <laughs> Shouldn't our flesh hate the cross? If we found a cross that our flesh doesn't hate, I got news for you. It's not a cross. It's a lie. And the greater your gifting, the greater your calling, the greater God's purpose on your life, the more you're going to have to embrace this. There's no exception. You can hide from it. And in doing so, you successfully stall and forestall all the change you're praying for. You're going to go through that eye of the needle. You're going to press into it. Discipline doesn't just come in the form of a rebuke from a brother or sister. It comes in many forms. I acknowledge that. God disciplines us through the circumstances of life. Even the state can represent a, a hardship that we can interpret as discipline. Tragedy can become that. Sickness, illness, all of it is intended to bring us to a place where we stop relying on ourselves and we find more grace that God extends to those who are weak. The basis for God's acceptance is how we respond to correction, not whether we require it. Let me just give you another shotgun of scriptures. Let the godly strike me. It is a kindness. If they correct me, it is soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it. He's talking to himself there. <laughs> who else is he talking to? Don't let me refuse it. It's medicine. But he's telling himself this because he knows the instinct is to, to oppose that which we seek. Proverbs 
Don't bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you. Correct the wise and they will love you. Are you a mocker? You're going to hate the person who corrects you. Are you wise? You're going to love the person who corrects you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. Proverbs, to learn you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. Proverbs, only a fool despises a parent's discipline. Whoever learns from correction is wise. Proverbs again, whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Make your home in my word. Thank you, Jesus. Proverbs again, to one who listens, valid criticism is like gold jewelry. Proverbs 27, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Ecclesiastes, better to be criticized by a wise person than praised by an idiot. You could have hit the symbol on that one. For the cash, you asked, how do we keep the victory? Our victorious status with God as his son remains dependent on accepting corrective truth that cleans our dead branches, increases our fruit, and cures our instabilities. This corrective word of truth ensures our place as adopted heirs for whom the inheritance is destined. We can all think about times in our life where things were happening that we thought were terrible, and they probably were. But in Hebrews, in that same chapter, he says, consider hardship as discipline. The hardship that the Hebrew congregation was facing was utterly unfair, and it was coming at the hands of evil people. He said that they had suffered imprisonment and the confiscation of their property. He said that they had had suffered persecution and trials. Was God imprisoning them? Was God confiscating their property? Was he taking any joy in it? No, but his sovereign design cannot be undone by the disruptions of the devil. God's sovereign design can prevail for those of us who accept his sovereignty above our own you see what I'm saying look at your life I think about some of the hardest things I've gone through some of the hardest things that we see people go through in the Bible and you say God that's unfair that's unfair that's unfair it is but God is still using it as training as discipline as an occasion to bring Gold out of dross and power out of weakness and love out of hate and life out of death and it's still being redeemed. Think about Joseph. He's betrayed by his brothers. He's enslaved by Ishmaelites. He's betrayed and lied about by his employer. He's forgotten by his friends in the prison. But when you look at the totality of his life, are you more inclined to 
to weep over those things or to say, God, I get it now. I get it. This wasn't God precisely doing it, but God was working all things together for the good so that he could stand in the end and say, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Do you believe that there is no intention of evil against you? That God cannot turn for good if your heart stays right toward him? I remember standing in the hospital room early in the morning, 21 years old, totally freaked out. And my dad's saying, God is going to use this. He said, I've never seen someone go through something like this where it did not catapult them into the purpose of God. And he just named one after another after another. That seemed impossible at the time, but it was the truth. I can look back on my life and look at the toughest moments where somebody wronged me. Somebody lied about me. Some kind of hardship that was unfair or not quite what it should have been. And in the moment, I could have died in the unfairness of that situation. But, but now looking back, I can say, God, that was just three months before you opened the door that no man could shut. That was just three months before you answered the prayer that I had been seeking for 10 years. That wasn't an accident. That was God taking all that the devil intended for evil and saying, I can use this too. Amen. It doesn't matter if it's the slander from outside that hurts and stings and shocks us or it's the affliction of disease that makes us feel caught and hopeless or the betrayal of friends. Amen. Or the rebuke of truth. We can't make it unless we start looking at our hardships as discipline and trusting that God is affirming his love to us through them. Brother Cash, the only reason people will repeatedly lose the victory God repeatedly gives is because they resent the chronic condition of their flesh that asks for a regimen and not a one-off cure. And they, they want it to be done with. Our illness of sin is less analogous to a wound and more analogous to a chronic disease. But we can walk in victory over it if we stay in the body, if we stay in the spirit, if we stay in the truth. We will be knowing the truth and the truth will be making us free. Thank you, Jesus.